Hi, everyone. Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 6, and we're reading two verses, 19 and 20. 19, uh, or starts like this. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It is great to be here with you all this morning. Uh, at Chapelgate, one of the greatest joys I've had in my ministry there is to be partnering with Patrick in the planning of the church here. I love every opportunity I have to come visit. I always learn the most interesting things. You know, I learned earlier that uh, uh, if, if 7 o'clock is too late for some of you, that Cheris would be glad to meet you at 6 at the new office <laughs> to pray for you who uh, find 7 too late. Uh, and uh, your, your children's sermon was absolutely fabulous. It was so good. I think that 16-week series got shortened to 11 weeks <laughs> at the very most. In fact, it reminded me of the story of this one associate pastor who came up to do uh, the children's sermon, and he wanted to use something visual. And So he asked the kids this question, what's gray, has a bushy tail, and collects nuts? There's this long silence. Finally, one little boy in the back row raises his hand. The pastor calls on him, and the boy replies, I know the answer should be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. Um, uh, one of the best stories, I, I, actually, I don't know if it's the best, but it's my favorite. It was actually taught to me by a, a fifth grade boy at summer camp when I was about 19. Uh, he told me the story of this preacher who loved to hunt rabbits. It was one of his most favorite things to do. One Sunday morning, he got up. The sky was clear. It was blue. The sun was shining. The temperature was just right, and he decided he was going to skip church and hunt rabbit. And uh, so he called his associate pastor, told him he was sick. Uh, pastor took over and preached, and this guy headed out into the woods to hunt. Uh, it was such a beautiful day, he kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the woods. Uh, finally, he realized he was in a section of the wood he had never been in before. He heard this rustling behind him, and he turned around, and what he saw was this great big bear just barreling down on him. So the pastor took off running through the woods as fast as he could go. He got about a 100 yards when he tripped over the root of a tree knowing that the bear would overtake him before he could get back on his feet, he prayed, Lord, forgive me for hunting today. Please make this a Christian bear. He turns around, and what does he see but this great big bear with his hands, paws folded, saying, Dear Lord, thank you for this food I'm about to receive. Amen. <laughs> That's my cheap way to tell you this morning I want to talk to you about prayer. I was excited that... Uh, you are starting a prayer meeting this week, but I just don't want to talk about prayer in general. I want to take the opportunity this morning uh, to talk with you about how to pray for your pastor because I think there may be nothing more important for you to do as a community of faith than to pray for the shepherd that God has called to lead you. Uh, Let's look again at that verse in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a little bit different translation than I have, but it says this. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it 
fearlessly as I should. Whenever an idea gets repeated in a passage, what somebody who teaches you how to study the Bible will tell you, that thing's really important. Pay attention to it. Twice, Paul asks his people to pray that he would be fearless. Uh, I've got a picture that I sent. Patrick, can, uh, who's, who's got the picture? Isn't this a great picture? Uh, four weeks ago, uh, I was visiting uh, Athens, Greece. And uh, I went there uh, to visit with another church planning partner of ours, uh, uh, a guy named uh, Yodis Kantartsis. Yodis is training a team of uh, young pastors to plant churches in communities all over Athens where nobody has ever planted a church before. In fact, nobody can remember a time in the last 150 years when anybody planted a church in Athens, let alone a Christian church. And one of those guys is planting a church in the neighborhood of Exardia. And Exardia is an anarchist neighborhood right in the middle of Athens. And what I mean by anarchist neighborhood, all the anarchists have settled in Exardia. In fact, it's a place that a lot of people are afraid to walk into. Even the police don't go into Exardia because anarchists recognize no authority. That's what makes them anarchist. They believe that every man has a right to be a law unto himself. And another thing that anarchists believe is that the only people who are fearless is the anarchists. They believe everybody else is filled with fear and the only people willing to face the truth about society, culture, and themselves is the anarchist. When you go into Exardia, one of the things that you discover is that every surface that's reachable from the sidewalk is literally painted with all kinds of graffiti. Uh, in fact, I'm a photographer and I was just captivated and I took a lot of pictures of the uh, graffiti that just covers the walls in Exardia for blocks and blocks, nothing but graffiti. But this was my favorite one, right here. And uh, this is a painting by an anarchist of an anarchist. And the guy in the background, the guy in black, is the anarchist. And the anarchist is the one who's supposed to be fearless. But through the window, the anarchist is giving you a picture of what's going on in his own heart. And in his own heart, the anarchist who's captured, who's, who's, whose life principle is the only one who's not afraid is the anarchist, is actually himself captured by fear. There's a fear that resides in every person's heart. Jack Miller, in his book, uh, Powerful Evangelism for the Powerless, says that for every person who, who dares to proclaim the gospel of Christ, uh, their minds are filled with dark images. Images of a hostile world. Images of resistant uh, non-Christians. Im images of their own inadequacy for the task. Uh, 
I invited Patrick to give a report on your work about a year ago in Presbytery. And uh, he, he let off his report by saying this, planning a church in Roland Park is the most exciting thing I've ever done, and it's the most terrifying thing I've ever ventured. Uh, every church planter I've ever worked with says exactly the same thing. If it was the Apostle Paul's need, if his need, I mean the great Apostle Paul, the, the first great missionary of the church, the one who extended the gospel from Antioch to Rome, if his deepest need was for the church to pray, that he would make known the mystery of the gospel as fearless as he should, how much more do men like Patrick and men like me need you to pray that we would declare the gospel as fearlessly as we should? The second thing I'd like to encourage you to pray is found in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. In Colossians 2, verse 6, Paul writes this, Just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up, strengthened in, in faith, as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. I think this is the first passage I ever preached when I was invited to preach here. Uh, what Paul, think about that for a minute. He's saying, just as you receive Christ. Now, how did you do that? Well, you remember, it's as you turn from your sin and to Christ in repentance and faith. Paul's saying, just as you received him, continue to walk in him. Now, what's a walk? You know, all a walk is, is uh, you take one step, put the left foot in front of the other, repeat it, and you've got to walk. Just keep repeating a step, and you've got to walk. And uh, so, uh, how did you receive Christ as Lord? First step, repent. Second step, believe. How does one walk every day in the Christian life? It's in the posture of repentance and faith. It says we keep repenting and we keep believing the gospel. Uh, a friend of mine said that when you enter the gospel ministry... It is like having God sprinkle miracle grow on all your sins. Uh, I remember the first time I preached on this passage was about 1994. And when I did, I talked about some of my own struggles as a pastor and how I needed to see God working fresh repentance and fresh faith in my life every day in the very tangible, nitty-gritty, rubber-meets-the-road things every day. When I was done, this very dear older pastor, excuse me, older church elder, followed me back to my office, and he closed the door, and he said, Jim, that was a good message. He said, but remember this, pastors should never confess their sins in public. Because people need to know 
that the Christian life works for somebody. That's about the worst advice (laughs) I've ever been given. Because the truth is, what proves that the faith is powerful and can change people is the fact that it can change me every day. Because the truth is, Patrick and I as pastors are every bit as much like every one of you. We put our pants on one leg at a time. We have to brush our teeth. We have to exercise if we're going to be fit. We need to eat well if we're going to be healthy. We have the same struggles with our spouses, with our children, with our parents, with our friends. With We, we deal with the same junk and garbage in our lives that you do in yours. Pam once told me, actually before I get, quote her, she's sitting back here, uh, I want you to know that uh, while my kids were growing up, uh, my, my kids are all now in their mid-30s. And, uh, but when they were growing up, uh, they used to call me the funmeister. Now the reason they called me the funmeister was no matter what we did, uh, no matter how boring it might look, I worked as hard as I possibly could to make it fun for them. Because, you know, when, when you're a pastor, your, your kids often have a lot of waiting around to do. <laughs> They're just waiting for dad to quit talking to those people in the back of the church so they can get on with life. And so no matter what I did, I was always trying to make it fun for my kids because I didn't want them growing up and, and having to say later on in life, being a pastor's kid was the most boring thing anyone could do. I wanted to grow up saying it was the most fun thing they could ever do. And so I poured a lot of energy into making everything we do fun. And I think our girls still remember that, don't they? Uh, but, you know, uh, I was boasting about this one day, uh, as I am right now, and uh, uh, Pam said to me, do you realize the greatest gifts that you've ever given us as a husband and a father are not all those fun things. They're your repentances. That has touched our hearts more deeply than anything else you've ever said or anything else you've ever done. My challenge to you this morning is to pray for the Spirit to work in Patrick's life, fresh repentance and fresh faith every day. And if you'll pray that, you will find his preaching touching your heart and transforming others. The third thing I wanted to encourage you to pray for Patrick is I want to encourage you to pray for open doors Uh, Later in this same letter, in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes this, And pray for us that God may open doors for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. I want you to pray that as Patrick preaches the gospel in all kinds of venues, in all kinds of ways, here in Roland Park, that God would open doors to the message. You see, one of the things that looms large in the dark mind of a pastor is just the resistant hearts of hearers. 
uh, the hostile responses of those who've never known what it means to follow Jesus. It's a tough job. And uh, what every pastor knows, that unless God opens the doors, the preaching of the gospel bears no fruit. Because it's only God who changes hearts. And nothing's more encouraging than to see hearts changing. Uh, When I uh, had an opportunity a number of years ago to go to uh, Australia, and uh, I was invited by the Presbyterian Church in Australia. Yes, there are two PCAs in this world. That's another one. And uh, uh, the Presbyterian Church in Australia, the pastors were getting together for uh, an annual retreat. And they invited me to come and talk to them about the renewing power of the gospel for pastors. So that's what I went to do. And uh, uh, the first day, I, I spoke several times, and it was the most hard-hearted audience I can ever remember preaching to. And so uh, I was so discouraged. I, I would say I was depressed. I, I was actually fearful about going on with the rest of the week. I thought, if the rest of the week is like today, all hope is lost. So uh, I was traveling with my laptop, and I, I had uh, a group of prayer supporters. I had about 100 people who, over the years, had committed to pray faithfully for me. So I plugged my laptop in, and uh, I shot off an email to my prayer supporters saying, Please pray for the work of the gospel in the hearts of Presbyterian pastors like me in Australia. Because if God doesn't show up in these meetings, all hope is lost. And so I sent that email out. And uh, the second day, I preached again, and the experience was the same. The third day, I preached again, the experience was the same. The fourth day, I preached again. The experience was the same. In fact, I felt like the guys in their questions were getting a little bit hostile. And uh, I, I honestly had never encountered this much resistance. The last day, we always ended these on the fifth day with a time of prayer. And everybody would get in the room, and I would, I would ask the, the group to pray. Uh, and uh, I'd ask them to pray for the places in their lives where they most deeply needed to see the gospel working in them. And uh, so guys started to share, and they'd ask me if we could pray for their Aunt Betty, who had a broken leg. And they'd asked me if we could pray for a person in their church who had been sick for the last week. They asked the group to pray that uh, they would get a new piece of property to build a new church. <clears throat> Not one of these pastors asked for prayer for themselves. None of them were willing to say, this is where I need to see the gospel most deeply at work in my life. Finally... There was one young, I mean, she was the youngest person in the room. It was one of the, it was actually the youngest 
pastor's wife. She was about 26 years old. She sat in the back. She sheepishly raised her hand. And she began to confess her own struggle with fear and unbelief and acknowledge how deeply she needed to see God work in her life. As she, pra- as she talked and, and began to just unpack what that meant for her so that the guys in this room would know how to pray for her. You know what happened? Those men around the room, one by one, began to go like this. Tears welling up in their eyes. And in that moment, we saw the Spirit of God show up. And I promise you, I don't overuse the word renewal, revival. I saw revival break out right there in the room before my very eyes. I've never witnessed anything before it or since. It was so amazing. As that young woman shared all these hard, sometimes hostile Presbyterian pastors like me began to weep and confess their sin and their deep need for God to work in their life today just as he did the day they first believed. You know what was really interesting? As soon as that happened, I went back to my room, I plugged in my laptop because I wanted my prayer partners to know that God had answered their prayer. You know what happened? I couldn't get online. I couldn't send an email. So I went to one of the American missionaries who was working there, and I said, listen, you got to help me get online. He said, oh, I can't do that. He said, you'll have to wait till you get back to my house and use my computer. I said, why? He said, American modems don't work in Australia. When I got home, I found all these emails from my American prayer partners who told me that God moved them to pray. And you know when that was? It was when that woman was sharing. (laughs) God had stirred them to get up in the middle of the night because there's a 13-hour difference between here and Australia. And I got emails from about a score of people who said, God, burden heart. You know what? They got that first email. That email that I wasn't supposed to be able to send, they got. And in the middle of the night, they began to pray. And as they prayed, the Spirit of God showed up and moved in the lives of those pastors. My encouragement to you is simply this. Pray that God would work in Patrick's life and in guys like me, fresh repentance and fresh faith every day. Because the truth is, we do need Jesus today every bit as much as the day we first believed. And finally, I want to ask you to pray for Patrick, that God would empower him. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, Peter writes this, If anyone serves, he should do it 
with the strength that God provides. You know what the temptation of every pastor is? It's to do in his own strength what he can get done. (laughs) Maybe you feel like you sometimes resemble those remarks in your own life. You know, there's a lot of stuff we can do in our own strength. You know, uh, I can double down and do the work I need to do to get that office building opened up over there, you know. I can uh, work hard and get the bulletin out every week. Uh, I can put in the hours of study and write a sermon and be ready to go every Sunday morning. Uh, I can do what I need to do to run the mechanics of the church. You know, there's a lot I can actually do in my own strength. Uh, But the problem is, when I do, the things that really need to happen don't happen at all. One of my favorite books, and it is... uh, Uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained. Uh, I was never into literature much, but when I studied soft lit in college, we had to write these two, we had to read these two books. And uh, in Paradise Lost, Milton is telling the story in a literary form about Satan's fall from heaven and the entrance of sin into the world. And, And that's why it's called Paradise Lost. Because when sin entered human experience, the paradise that God created for you and I to live in was lost. Have you ever wondered why life is hard? Have you ever felt yourself saying, life just shouldn't be this way? If you ever do, you're absolutely right. And the reason you're right is you weren't designed to live in a fallen world. You and I were designed to live in Eden, in paradise. And so we often feel that way, and we should. Uh, And so Milton writes this second book, Paradise Regained. And in Paradise Regained, Milton tells this story of a three-day battle that was waging in heaven, where the forces of Satan were arrayed against the forces of God. And for three days they fought against one another. On the third day, it looked as though the forces of Satan were going to prevail against the heavenly hosts. And then, Jesus, the Son of God, steps into the battle and moves to the center line. And he says, Stand aside, ye heavenly hosts, for these have been consigned unto me. And Jesus engages in the conflict. And Satan himself is dealt a mortal blow. And his forces lose the battle. And then Milton pens these words, Yet half his strength he put not forth. Half his strength he put not forth. Pray for Patrick and guys like me that as we labor in the ministry of the gospel, that we would labor in the strength of the one who has already defeated the enemy and who has not even yet put forth half his strength.